Right, one army left. Five. Five. Six. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that then. That's me blasted off the board for the third game running by the Allied forces of Mini Crun. <laughs> and why I bother? Welcome to Goon Pod. Now, Andy Warhol once said that in the future, everyone would be famous for 15 minutes. Well, the future's here, and his prophecy has not yet quite come to pass. Uh, my wife's Uncle Ted is one of the least famous people you could ever meet, but were he around today, Mr. Warhol might have observed that most middle-aged men would have a podcast. Razor's hand. Regular listeners will have noticed that this show has been off the pod waves for a few weeks. And if you haven't, why the hell not? Uh, the fact is uh, uh, that my father sadly passed away in January and I had to return to the old country for a while. It was a, a very reflective time for me and and you know, quite emotional as well. And um, I have often talked about my dad on this podcast. Uh, he was the person who really instilled within me uh, a love of comedy especially british comedy uh, and of course it was it was through him that i first heard gags from the goon show as he would often uh, you know quote lines around the house when i was still um <laughs> in short trousers and i want to dedicate this episode to him my guest is one of this country's greatest comedy creators who in a way straddled the worlds of so-called mainstream comedy and new wave or alternative comedy. David Renwick was equally at home writing for the likes of the two Ronnies as he was Alexis Sale, but it was for the miniseries on radio and television he co-created in the 70s and 80s with longtime collaborator Andrew Marshall and subsequently as a solo writer that he's best known. Shows such as The Burkus Way, End of Part One, Whoops Apocalypse, Hot Metal, and of course, One Foot in the Grave and Jonathan Creek. Uh, I'm a massive fan of, of One Foot in the Grave and could easily have spent, I don't know, several days talking to David about that program alone. But but this being Goompod, I first of all focused on the brief period he and Andrew spent working with Spike Milligan in the early 80s on the series. There's a lot of it about uh, Q10 and all but name. Uh, David had a lot to say about Spike, as well as working with the two Ronnies, with people like David Jason, and even, whisper it, Bill Cosby. And yes, we did talk rather a lot about One Foot, because, as I always say, listeners to this podcast are comedy fans in general, and, and don't expect me to stick rigidly to the topic of the goons when in conversation with such august talents. So anyway, enough blathering, enjoy the show. Obviously, I want to um, talk about, you know, Spike, but I appreciate that, that was only a small part of 
your career working on there's a lot of it about so i appreciate you won't necessarily i suppose have a huge amount to talk about on, on that but well there's i mean there's always a huge amount to talk about with spike i mean yes of course it was a a, a tiny um portion of andrews and andrew marshall's and my output um but a huge um element in our lives i mean you know how could working with spike milligan not be you know it wasn't something to be taken lightly yes <laughs> and um you know i mean spike uh, was, was was a was was never not in the sort of comedic firmament ever since you know i, I can remember from childhood and i was born in uh, 1951 and you know just kind of on just 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 post goon you know for ideal for listening to the goons on the radio i kind of really didn't start uh, start listening or watching goons till telly goons came along slightly oh crazy. dear <laughs> um, did that look of your nightmares yeah uh, well no no because I, I you know to this day i kind of still see them you know see the characters a bit like that i didn't think they were a bad realization you know if you if you're gonna try and you know introduce some physicality to what are basically abstract um you know uh characters on the radio would almost never want to see what they look like but i didn't think they did a bad job but it, no i mean I, obviously i was aware of the radio versions and there were a bit uh, there were, i think there was one particular um fellow pupil at school um who had uh had several of the lps because that's the only way you'd you know it's the only form of um recorded um uh, version that you'd get of anything in those days was so long playing records mm -hmm. um, and we used to quote all the jokes to each other and there was a scarlet capsule i remember was one of them i think that was on that was on uh, on disc at that time and uh, yeah that that was the of, that was the second yeah, the disc. Mm -hmm. was it yeah um I, I don't remember what the others were from this just a long long while ago yeah but um you know and then uh, when i started organizing school trips to uh to, to radio and television shows one of those was the world of beachcomber uh, oh right the first one that we went we went to i think it was even before python um, where there were actual color monitors hanging around the studio you know and we'd been to see the frost report which is still exclusively black and white but um and seeing Milligan, I can still to this day just see him sitting there in his sort of tasseled hat on the right hand side of the of the of the of the studio um, before us. You know, all these sort of magical environments like Aladdin's cave to me, all the lights <clears throat> suspended and cameras and equipment and everything. You'd think, God, wouldn't it be wonderful to you know to you know to to work in the environment you know and get yeah. paid for it you know so that was that was the first time i ever saw him and um uh but very well known to me by that stage anyway sort of spooled forward a long time into uh, the uh i suppose it was sort of very early 80s 81 or something um yeah. andrew mm -hmm. marshall and i had been writing for radio and uh series called the burkis way and um uh kind of or semi-spin-off for London Weekend called End of Part One. And I I, I gather that these were shows he had, um, you know, been interested in and obviously had appealed to him in some way because um, we got the call one day from our agent. So we were, I think we were sitting working on Woods Apocalypse that he wanted to take us to dinner. So um, that very night we were at the Tratoo in Kensington um, having dinner with Spike and Neil Shand, who I did know. Yeah. 
<laughs> so but yeah we did that but with an eye to you know trying as best we could to replicate the the spike style i mean being big fans of that um you know surrealist kind of um, comedy we were you know, it wasn't it wasn't entirely foreign to us um but you know spike is just a one-off and and how the things kind of gestate in his mind i think he never had time to gestate i think it's just a flow of consciousness you know all the um the wonderful things that uh, emerged i mean when we first when I mean, there was a very another very early meeting where he came in with me and just read out all the stuff he'd written so far which was mostly you know just hysterical and um you know, just just mind-bogglingly inventive well, as you may have heard on the news, earlier this evening, the comedian and writer Spike Milligan died at his home in Barnet, aged 104. Widely regarded as one of the country's true comic geniuses, the late Mr. Milligan had only just completed recording a new series of his zany, wacky, half-hour shows for the BBC. That's BBC Two, of course, and not BBC One, who tended to regard him as something of a light entertainment leper. And though millions will mourn the tragic passing of Mr. Milligan's unique and eccentric talent, we have been asked by the trustee of his estate, a Miss Glenda Plunge of Latex Dungeon Soho, to honour his memory in the way that he would surely have wished. BBC Two is now proud to present George Formby in Spare a Copper. Um, one of the great problems was that it didn't stop there and by the time it got to the studio floor there had been so many extra sort of embellishments mm. that didn't mm. necessarily help the original concept which you thought my god that's a very very um, startling comic idea he's come up with there but then you would have i mean there was a joke there was a sketch about joke anemia i remember there was one and uh, um it, it ended up with i don't know david lodge or somebody dressed as max miller and spike manipulating a, a, a dummy of david dimbleby from underneath the desk <laughs> i remember neil shander was just standing we were standing next to each other in the studio i wish this wasn't happening <laughs> all of those sketches actually as it happened for that final series i don't think it was the case for the previous few shows were all rehearsed record and there was a lot of pre-filming that was done at ealing um and the studio um video sketches were all rehearsed record and um in a, in a cold studio <clears throat> then the whole all the shows were taken away and edited together and shown to an audience to an right audience. So uh, okay. there was no live audience on those shows at all. It was, um, which well, I think kind of suited him more because then you know he could go off and moan about things, you know, and berate the crew, berate the director. I mean, he had such a caustic, corrosive way with um, people who got on the wrong side of him. Yeah. No. Um, thankfully, Andrew and I never did. We were always we led this charmed life of being in a good book. But um, he could be devastatingly um, um, abusive to people. And dis dismissive, <laughs> yeah. Mm. Yeah, when people would come up to him and, you know, either and make some whatever comment, either in jest or in or as part of an argument, there was just an instant uh, reply, a response of some sort, um, without, you know, almost having to think about, you know, which was 
um, you know, what he was going to say. I think in his mind, he knew what he wanted and it was very difficult to translate what was in his mind onto, (laughs) you know, the floor or or radio. I mean, he brooked no argument. This was the the point. I mean, I think on, you know, on several occasions he had that, that out came that staccato declaration. I was right and you were wrong. Mm. Um, I remember him say that in a um, at a I think an animal rights rally in Trafalgar Square. You know, where it <clears throat> probably had more weight. But um, you know, if he was talking about you know, some joke to do with a Julia Breck's bra or you know, it's just really crap sort of. You know, but he would still approach it as if it you know was something of great uh, you know great weight. Yes. Um, and yeah. uh, and and I won't have it. They tried to make it out that I was wrong when I was right and everyone else was wrong and there's sort of no discussion, you know, then you storm off in a huff and uh, have to be coaxed back into the studio. Things like that that wouldn't have happened <laughs> in front of a you know a live audience. But when we did show it to a live audience, I mean, he was there uh, in person, presumably to try and gee them up and uh, you know, the force of his sort of personality and came out you know because all the obviously the shows were just being shown on monitors um for the audience's benefit to uh to record their laugh and said, hands up all those who dig my humor you know in a voice that suggested that anyone who, who dissented might be ejected from the studio you know very strange and then he went on to say to, to talk about the yeah that how easy it was to to, to get people to laugh with jokes about women with big tits and men's trousers falling down but you know, we're above all that and uh, and then proceed to show them six shows which were packed with you know all of those elements and that sort of um that uh, that contradiction was always lost on him and here's the news with reginald bazonka <laughs> there was a collision today on the m1 between a lorry load of marmalade and a truck filled with dams and preserve. The accident will be used by the two Ronnies later tonight in a joke about traffic jams and big knockers. But you know, overall, he there was there was so much in in the in those shows and in his body of work generally that is just peerlessly funny. That I guess you you know you make those allowances. I mean. We kept in touch with him for um, several years after the after the, the Q show, which unaccountably he decided to rename. There's a lot of it about it was never explained why. But um, and I, we, I think I I understand the BBC didn't like hadn't liked the, the Q name for the longest time. Um, well, this was going to be Q ten. Ten, yeah. Mm. Um, so they took a long while from five to nine. No, no. different heads of comedy. I, I think as well. Um, by the by, the time there's a lot of about comes along, which is the early eighties, the comedy landscape has changed, has altered quite significantly in the in the last in the sort of previous sort of four or five mm. years, and I don't, and I think Spike was looking askance at. And okay, Little and Large was still prime time and, and Cannon and Ball and all the rest of it, but there was alternative comedy creeping in. There was not the nine o'clock news. There was even, you know, end of part one. Um and and stuff that was different to perhaps what Spike was used to. And and I think he was trying to stay relevant 
um, but still doing the same old shtick because I've have you have you seen any episodes of there's a lot of it about recently or recently no no <laughs> i've tried to avoid well i mean it's not easy to find them anyway i might have some recorded on old vhs somewhere but uh, yeah it, it's on youtube aren't them no there is all six episodes are available but they're not very good quality transfers no. and, and it's very difficult to to make out it looks like there's higher production values than on previous q series and it looks like there's a lot of um not there's there's, there's vt but there's also a lot of um, film. Yeah, well, well, I mean, there was there always was film on on, on the cube shows as that had been on all kinds. But I mean, this was one of the reasons why Andrew and I always wanted to to, to submit our projects for the BBC, which we did uh, two or three occasions. They were turned down and ended up on ITV. But the BBC was always had those superior production quality. Um, and um, you know, I remember the first day that I went along to Ealing Studios when they were filming the first Quickets. I mean, most of which were really didn't. You know, merit, merit even airtime, but the BBC had so gone to town, you know, in the design department in terms of uh, you know the, the sets that they were building for, you know, some ten-second piece of rubbish that that Spike had just come up with. Um, so it always looked fantastic. I mean, that was one of the things about the BBC in those days before they sold off all their you know resources and um, all the you know, the scenery. They spent, um, yeah, they spent a lot of money to make something look quite cheap. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I well, I suppose it's yes, it's arguable whether it looked any cheaper. Than, I mean, London Weekend didn't do a bad job of design as well. I mean, Thames was was uh, was poorer in that respect, I think. But because uh, I I've, I rewatched, there's a lot of it about pre preparing for this, and it's there's some good stuff. Of course, there is. There's a lot of, I mean. Ugh. There's a hell of a lot of, um, as you touched upon before, there's a hell of a lot of female nudity and and also blackface, um, which by 1980, what, two, three, was, that boat had sailed. Um, but there's a lot, just so much going on, like you say, um, there's just quickies, there's lots of, lots of extended sketches, and it's very difficult to, I tried, I tried to sort of pinpoint or tried to sort of guess what sketches were written by you and Andrew? I tried well, to kind well, of well, you would fail miserably on that because I mean the things were kind of cannibalized and really yeah, mm. mangled and by, by Spike mostly anyway. So there was no purity of idea. Okay. But did you? Am I right in saying you may not remember? Of course, there was a sketch, a GLC sketch, and there was someone in that sketch, like an extra, sitting at a table. And it looked like it could have been you. No, I don't. I mean, the only time I remember actually sitting in on Earth sketch was in somebody's front room. Um, I think it was a quickie about them watching television and Spike was probably sitting next to me or two away from me controlling things for real with a remote control, TV that remote control. That, that was it. Bells. That was it. I think that one. Because yeah, I think I remember sort of nodding at one point we were meant to be watching something musical, so we were, you know, sort of nodding our heads away to that. Um, but that's the only time I think I remember actually stepping in front of a camera. I don't, I don't think Andrew did. Well, the only reason I, I thought it was you, um, and look, with the greatest respect, David, you know, you're, you're a writer. You're not, you have appeared on television, of course, but you're not a household face. 
shall, shall we say. <laughs> um, but the reason I, I recognized, the reason I recognized or thought I recognized you was because I'd, I'd also watched, um, I don't know if you remember, there was a 1982, 81, 82 documentary about Mike Yarwood. Mm. Um, and it's, I think it's called something like, and this is me, something mm. like that. And um, early on in that documentary, Oh, yeah. there's, a scene where, there's a scene with us sitting with John Ammons in the uh, yeah. conference room with Mike um, playing up the impersonations far more than you would have done normally if we were actually sitting discussing the show because obviously we the cameras were on. Them. Um, yeah, there's a, I don't I think I, I think I was allowed two words in that sketch. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's a point or something I think I said. Um, well, he's because you've got a sketch idea for to a top of the pops, a proposed top of the pop sketch with um, yeah, the members of the shadow shadow cabinet. Yeah. yeah, ended up being a Bob Hope thing. But um, yes, well, there, there's uh, yes, <laughs> I made odd odd little guest appearances like that along the way, never very comfortably, admittedly. We just want the vehicle for introducing what three acts or four acts who yeah. are were they politicians, Michael yeah. Foot or. Yeah, well, uh, for, yes, if you don't, if we didn't do you the video... You could still call it showcase or you know, whatever, couldn't you, artists? You Why don't we have the Bob Hope cabaret? Mm. Mm. God, yes, that's a thought, isn't it? What do you mean? Let's get all the... Got, well, it's a good thought. All the Bob, Bob, the Bob cabaret. Hope cabaret. Well, His guest the Bob Hope cabaret. I mean, so, that's <clears> been on recently. We had a lot of trouble trying to get show business people. That's right. I got Mitel Foot to entertain you right here. And all comes by. And he does a dance with it. Great, that's nice. It's a sort of hotel situation. Yeah. Um, we'll come back to Spike in a little bit, if that's okay. I just wanted to talk about a few other things in terms of your earlier career. And, and also, inevitably, I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, One Foot in the Grave. I gather you mentioned early on when you, you said about going to watch Beachcomber, and I gather that you'd been to see filming of Python. Um, so was that quite early? Was that, was that what, Series 2, Series 3? Can you remember what? No, it was the first series. It was the Lumberjack episode. And, oh, okay. Uh, was, I mean, you know, Python, when it first came to the screen, was uh, was not something unusual to myself and my circle of uh, comedy-loving friends. Because we, we kind of, um, we'd all discovered, I'm sorry, I'll read that again, but that was the very first thing, I think, in that sense of the, sense of the Oxbridge uh, review genre. Um and other shows like Complete Another History of Britain and yep. uh, BBC Three, Twice a Fortnight, and, uh, and all those um, that you know, do not adjust your set principally, um, mm. which uh, contain various. So when they were all brought away, or, or you know, a permutation of those performers came together to um, to do Python, that was just the latest in that line, that whole lineage of you know uh, review performers in the you know tv work um so sure. you know, when it started out you didn't think well this is going to be the real groundbreaker um and i think we'd watched maybe know, three or four because in those days it was what, a 13 week series or something so yeah. them, um, as the first ones were going out so um we um again i sent off the tickets and we got a coach party from our school went up there and Sat in. I mean, you know, the audience laughter was not great. You know, we weren't. It wasn't. It hadn't become the cult that it lately. Because we, we were about, I don't know, two, three weeks later, I wrote off to see if we get some more, and they we just couldn't get them by then. So I think that was probably about maybe it was about halfway through the 
first few. Well, it wasn't um, wasn't the first few episodes of Flying Circus. Wasn't wasn't the audience sort of bust in groups of Women's Institute members and the like that? Well, they probably were. That shot they always show of them clapping. Yes, um, <laughs> I, I think that, I think well, there was certainly. I mean, there's a legendary. That was the very first. Uh, 40 towers wasn't it where they apparently wondered why they weren't laughing and they were actually a group of poles or something <laughs> yeah. they were sitting in the front row um but uh no i know who did that i can't try to remember whether barry cry or barry took was doing the warm-up then he might have been either of them because i think they both did it like well, barry took was the sort of um sort of midwife to the series that's right yeah um uh, so I, I can't remember that, but I, it wasn't. Well, I mean, we were laughing uproariously, I'm sure. But um, that was that was the nature of the BBC ticket unit, um, uh, you know, which we kind of um, had our own ups and downs with over the years. Um, that they would send out invitations to people who had shown interest in you know, TV shows and uh, radio shows, and they would offer them tickets for this for that. Um, it wasn't always necessarily something that was um, either well suited to the to the audience that arrived, or or the audience wasn't well suited, vice versa. But they, you know, so you'd very often end up with, um, I guess, rather quite mystified coach parties turning up for mm. shows, and it was only really when something got going on the air and people were specifically um, requesting. And tickets for that show that you then got the you know the sort of confluence of sense of sense of humor um i mean we, we had that on the burgess way like the first first certainly first series the first half dozen of the second series where we just got this as you say this, this the, the regulation i don't know what even coach parties but people who would come along just get out of the cold probably sit down in the paris <laughs> studio and uh, <clears throat> it was only when john lloyd thought hang on, why don't we put out an announcement at the end of the programme when it goes out on the air saying, if you'd like tickets to see this, uh, um, blah, blah, blah. And the next week, there were queues around the block. And then we suddenly found there was actually an audience out there were listening. Um, you know, once they knew that they were entitled to come along and uh, watch the recording, so they all, so they all flocked, flocked to us. Um, but, you know, you have to, the ticket unit were not terribly proactive in, in that respect. So Python had to find its own audience, and as I say, then you know once once it had taken off, you, you couldn't get tickets for love nor money. But um, but at that point, it was there was as you know the first those first episodes do have a slightly colder feel to them in terms of the action. And I know that you were working as a journalist on a on a local newspaper in the early seventies, um, the Luton News. Is that right? Um, yes, at the time when I uh, jo uh, joined the Luton News in 1970, there was a rather um, Thompson paper called the Evening Post, which was, a, as the name suggests, came out every evening. We were a weekly. And yeah. um, so they you know, kind of got first dibs on all the stories. Um, and we had to try and find a new angle by the time our, our paper came out on a Thursday. I don't know. Don't ask me why. But in the, as, as, as the years went by, that paper folded. Um, but that was, you know, I kind of joined that on the mistaken assumption that because I quite enjoyed writing, that would be the career for me. But, um, you know, you soon find out it's about ringing people up and trying to talk to people who don't want to talk to you. And yeah. Yeah. Streets and knocking on doors. And <clears throat> so 
at simultaneously I was getting my first sketches on radio and uh, in my spare time so after four years of that I decided it was you know, it was now or never sure. to see if I can make a living doing what I really wanted to do and you'd, you'd met Andrew Marshall on was it weekending yes we were during that uh, both both contributing to weekending so we you know we all met up in the conference room in those days in Iolian Hall which was in New Bond Street which was the headquarters of BBC LE mm. and there were people like John Lloyd and Douglas Adams who were there we met Colin Bostock Smith and Chris Miller, Pete Spencer who were, they were writing far more of the show than, than we were just kind of just just contributing on bits and pieces well I wasn't getting very much on at all because I had a full-time job obviously but um but you know that's where you just the camaraderie kind of um kicked in and we all went around to Yates's wine bar for you know at lunchtime for <laughs> yeah. some shepherd's pie or something so you know you kind of just mucked I mean this I just went there on my my one day off you know but whenever I got any time off at all from from the job I would I was very keen to go there and get my face known and and just mix, mix in with them all, go to the studio re uh, recording in PP1 on Friday morning, and weekending this is we're talking about. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's sort of where it all began. And then and by the time I left the newspaper, I had actually got to the stage where they were commissioning me to write a certain number of minutes material a week. Um, myself and Colin and Alistair Beaton and so that means, of course, that if you, you know, whether you get the sketches on or not, you still get paid. So it's shaping a certain degree of confidence in my ability. So, and I was still living at home at that time with my parents. So it was no big risk, you know, financial risk for me to, but I mean, as it happened, I you know, managed to just keep my head above water and learn bits and pieces. Yeah, because because there's a few, there's a couple of, um, things I've jotted names of shows I've jotted down here which for example Bruce Forsyth's Big Night which was a bit of a disaster um, not for yeah, you well, but well, well it was uh, it was, it was like most disasters that you work on it was huge fun to do of course Patricia Brake in The Return of the Glums. Surprises and prizes as we play Telly Tennis. Emu Mania with Rod Hull and Emu. And Britain's most dynamic disco dancers. Big money prizes on the £1,000 pyramid. Fun with our own fancy dresses. And our 16 dazzling dancers. Bruce was was wonderful to work with. You know, you had the experience of sitting in the the, the conference room with Bruce and all these other writers. Um, you know, every kind of every day we used to go in there and you know sort of work on the jokes and the ideas. And most of it sort of fell flat on their face, but um, but it was then you know go up to the restaurant and have our lunches together and meet all these you know, stars that came along, Dublin Moore and people. Um, you know, and it was just um, great fun. That was um, the, the show uh, ran about 14 episodes, I think. I mean, it began as this 
great sprawling mm. entity over about three hours or something on a Saturday night. It was after he left the BBC and Generation Gods mm -hmm. seven years. And um, they had all these inserts of Charlie Drake and the Glums. And the Glums, yeah. Mm. God knows what. And it was it, it, gradually as the series progressed, um, well, David Bell was head of the uh, department at that stage and uh, Michael Graves was controlling. They realised that really what they needed to do was trim it right back to what, what was its basic strength, which was Bruce, and mm. Bruce wrapped in the Republic and and doing a bit of song and dance and some comedy and you know getting rid of all those other extraneous elements. So that's what happened. But I don't. I, mean, I guess they would have uh, renewed it for another year if, if it had been a success. But but what was bizarre was that Larry Grayson, who just appeared to be completely hopeless on the Generation Game, was taken to the country's heart, and um, you know that. Ratings for that just skyrocketed, and yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, um, another show which um, you worked on, not Andrew, I believe, it was it was you working on the two Ronnies that um, uh, kept you busy for what? What was it? Best part of seven, eight years, something like that. Andrew and I wrote one sketch together that we did on on that, but the rest was me. Yes, I I mean I it was just I just built you know built my contributions up from news desk lines, and it was a bit like weekending really. I just made a point of going in to the studio every Sunday afternoon and and just you know make up. It sounds you know quite. Um, quite courageous of me. I don't know how I had the, uh, the nerve to do it, considering how unknown and um, sort of insignificant I was as a person and writer. But I, I kind of got on quite well with Peter Vincent, who was a script editor. And so I, you know, just used to go in and, you know, meet everybody and and I'd take in news lines with me very often. And they would obviously you know, give the news lines a dry run during the afternoon and if they felt there were one or two or two or three that weren't as funny as they thought they were they'd get the elbow at the last minute and um, they'd look for alternatives yeah uh, i'd come in with a sheet that you know maybe there was something on there that was completely fresh and that made them laugh and it would go straight into that night's show so um so that happened uh several times and and then i got commissioned for some sketches and um, I don't know uh, why it was at one particular point because I, I think uh, I kind of barely met the two Ronnies during that time. You know, I might have said hello to them, or, but then one day I got a um, 1976. I just out of the blue got a letter from Ronnie Corbett saying, "Would I like to be the script associate on his next variety series?" Um, which of course I jumped at that chance, of course, and um, so that was the beginning of my closer relationship with with, with Ronnie Corbett. Mm. Uh, and when Spike Mullins stopped writing Chair Spots, I took over. Yeah, so um, yeah, so all in all, it was 1974. I think I began at the news desk, and last show I think was 1986. So oh, gotcha. In all, kind of oh, you know, it spanned about. 12, 13 years. Okay, well, I didn't realise it was it was that length of time. Well, uh, there were a couple of years where they, they took time out from it, so, you know, but yeah, there were a lot of shows there. I wrote about 50 monologues for the chair, I think. God almighty. And, and of course, you get, you, you had the honour of um, 
as part of Ra- obviously you wrote Raiders of the Last Orc, mm. and was it Ronnie B that included the the line or the 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 piece that said it's a David O Renwick production? Yes. Well, I've been through this before that uh, my script um, as submitted began with the voiceover which said you know, 1860 whatever um, the last known example of the great orc um, was found dead in a, a marsh in Newfoundland whatever whatever um, the local natives believing it to have special powers fashioned a, a golden um, effigy of it and it's believed to have magical powers men have died trying to seek it and harness its power <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Mm, this mm. is their story then up comes this terrible pun in indiana jones writing lettering yep it is of the last orc you know so at the very least you think it would get a groan um instead of which um, when i went to the that the studio that day and i think it was marcus planting who was the director and producer then, so I'll wait till you see the opening of your film tonight um, and I, I assumed that he could, you know, with a sort of a nudge and a wink, as if it was going to be, you know, something really, really going to blow my socks off in terms <laughs> of the production values. But yeah. course, what he was alluding to was the fact that this book opened with my name, you know, for David O'Sullivan. You have to know David O'Sullivan in yeah. the first place to get that reference. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then up comes Raiders of the Last Orc, and then you get to the voiceover. So you've got, you know, joke and payoff completely <laughs> transposed. Yeah, I wasn't best pleased by the by the, the way that um, that that sketch started, really. It was a cause of uh, discontent. I'm sorry to have reopened that wound. No, no, that horrible <laughs> gaping wound. <laughs> With Melissa in the clutches of the Nazis, there is only one man in England equipped to rescue her. Little Hampton Jones, world-famous troubleshooter, and the only man known to have failed the medical for the Oval teams. I was a big fan of Alexi Sales' stuff, mm. and, and you and Andrew were very much the driving force or forces behind their writing on that, weren't you? Yeah, well, we did make some appearances in that one or two occasions. We were actually sitting there as the writers with them in one sketch. Um Yes, well, that all of that began um, began life in Miami actually when we were. I mean, he had a had a part in the Brooks Apocalypse television series, and then subsequently in the film. And we were all sitting on the you know, sitting on the beach there one day. And we said we really should get together and try and submit something for telly. Um, so when we when we got back, we did. We put a script together and um, submitted it to Jim Moyer. Yep. That make you come across him. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> who had his own um, peculiar sense of humour. I remember when we went in to talk to him about it, he said, uh, if I wasn't sitting on the other side of this desk, I'd be over there with my tongue down the back of your throats. <laughs> saying that he thought it was a good idea. Yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it still took a long while to get through the system. You know, the, the sort of labyrinths on BBC channels of you know and, and then the money it's always about money um i think they recognized that alexi was a, you know, was, a was a performer who was entitled to his own vehicle by that stage and uh, yeah so we ended up doing three series of that and then of course he went on to do some more um without us um you know, graham and malcolm matthews that's right yeah 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 because well it wasn't um 
on Whoops Apocalypse because because Alexi played was it Soldier Nitsen? So that's character. Yeah. Um, no relation. No relation. Um, but wasn't it on the the set of Whoops Apocalypse that Lenny Henry met Dawn French? They started well, going that's, out. That's the story. Yes, that the first episode. So he he knew Lenny from um, what was it? Uh, OTT. It was called. Oh yeah. Mm. Of Tiz was, I think, and um, so he'd invited Lenny along, and of course, Dawny knew from the from the, from the comedy store. Um, I think I think that's where they both met. Yeah, actually, um, yeah, Lenny told me that once. I don't know why I'm saying I think because he said that it was due to you. I met my wife. Right. Oh well, that's uh... at the time when she was still really young. But I think, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. Just on Spike, getting back to Spike. So he approached you. Is that right? He approached you and Andrew. Um, yes, I said we earlier we got that call to say from uh, I guess Norma Farms had rung up our agent Sheila Lemon and said um, you know can you make it to the Tratu tonight and that was that was really... we had had some uh, we'd had heard rumblings earlier that um, he might be coming along to a Burkis recording which obviously you know okay. was down our spine um, I gathered or I'm not entirely certain of the sort of the chronology of it that um, it was at a time when. Um, his previous wife Paddy was um, was dying. Oh, yes, so, you know, it was a very difficult time. Partly why he didn't get along, but um, yeah, um, yeah. So we'd had some indications. There was some suggestion in the air that he, Spike Milligan, likes your work. You know, which was a great sort of accolade. You know, um, it wasn't a hundred percent out of the blue, but it was still pretty, pretty uh, surprising. Did you keep in kind of keep in contact? I suppose working within the bbc and comedy in general you would probably meet him at parties or whatever over the years but did you keep in direct contact with spike you know yes in, yes the 90s? Okay. We, well we were we were um there were various other ventures that we were going to i mean there was going to be another q series for one thing but that was um nixed by the bbc in the end mm. And which we would have been involved in i mean he always every time he had some new idea for something he, you know he was on the phone to us wanting us to get involved and then we'd have meetings you know which really never got anywhere and just became social occasions and we we just ended up going for curries in uh, barnet or to the local italian and um the number of times we'd come call around his house and he you know this sort of aged shrunken man would come to the door <laughs> look, you know just so sad and <laughs> mm. like an invalid um and by the end of well not even the end of the evening but usually within an hour or so he would be you know, just curled up with mirth um you know and it was one of the one of the great greatest pleasures in life was to see spike uh in you know in full full flow of laughter at um, either something we'd said but which probably didn't amuse us remotely or something he'd said um, he was the only person I think who ever just caused me to be in pain from laughing. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can't even tell you why a lot of the time. I mean, there was one uh, occasion when he, he said he was working on the latest volume of his war memoirs. And he said that he just discovered that he, one of his oldest friends from the military had, um, had told him that he was actually quite offended by all of the jokes that <laughs> Spike was writing at his expense in these books. <laughs> Couldn't it. You know, so I rang round. I rang round all the other, uh, my other mates, and they said they were all offended by it. As well. <laughs> and he didn't tell this as a joke. He was, he was obviously quite wounded by it. But of course, we were yeah. all 
is he now so to laugh um i mean that's the sort of, i mean he just could make you laugh even for, even in his suffering um you know you couldn't help but sort of love him even though you know you saw the the sort of darker side of him because he knew that he was obviously just beset by all these demons and insecurities and uh, um you know that's all a part of well you know obviously the mental pain that he went through and uh, and um, mental health problems that he had over the years um you know taken their toll plus and i mean no one of our generation can possibly understand what it would have been like to go through those war experiences no exactly yeah. absolutely um and, and i believe correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding is that for the, the final ever on-screen appearance of Victor Meldrew, which was the comic relief special of 2001 called Visiting Uncle Dick. You wanted you wanted Spike to play Uncle Dick. Is that right? Yeah. Well, not long before that. Um, I think maybe it was when we were making the last series of somewhere around probably the late 90s, um, after he'd moved out to Rye. So our kind of our, we kind of lost touch a bit by that stage i mean prior to that when we were still in barnet we sort of always be ringing up sometimes about one o'clock in the morning or something it's no idea <laughs> um you know is that the late david renwick i mean there was a there was a there was a um a play that um i well i ended up writing on my own but uh, but to begin with i was discussing it with andrew marshall which was called angry old men and um it was about four characters who were kind of based who were sort of meant to be a, a fictitious seminal comedy troupe who were sort of an amalgam of goons beyond the fringe python mm. had these sort of four archetypes um who were hopefully sort of recognizable um cannibalizations of these different uh, characters one of whom was the spike stroke peter cook character the sort of wayward genius who never became quite as successful as all the others the, mm -hmm. uh, the one who kind of lost his comedy through through too much self-analysis who's who had a who, who was kind of jonathan miller jonathan. Yeah. yeah um and there was there was an obvious parallel between dudley moore and peter sellers you know the person yes. was still in this sort of london you know roots and uh, and but went off to become an international major movie star sex symbol and all the rest of it yeah. Um, so it was a, it was it was quite an interesting concept, but of course the so and the fourth one, as I say, well then there was actually the other one. Yes, that was the the David Frost character, um, who was who was just basically in it for the money. Um, <laughs> but uh, and the so we we're talking a lot about the uh, this the, the character who we named Felix Fox, who was a Spike Milligan character. And I came home from Andrew's house that day, and the first message on my aunt's answer phone was, uh, "All I do is talk to fucking machines." <laughs> Um, this is Spike ringing. You know, it just seemed like almost an omen that you know he'd be ringing up that day. Yeah, and yeah. Um, this was what he did. Anyway, I'm kind of I'm rambling all around the, your the answer to your question because he had rung me up in in the late nineties, towards the end of one thing as well, and in in order to ask me if I had a part for him, for God's sake. Um, I'm a very good actor, David. You know, and I'm not doing anything. And you think, well, you know, he'd, I think he'd just done a part. Had he just done a part in Gormenghast or something? Yes. That? Yeah. Um, and it was around that time. And I, just, I didn't have anything. There was nothing that I could, you know, so, well, yes, absolutely keep you in mind. You know, so we had our chat and talked about old times. 
And then um, fast forward to the when the series had finished and we did that um, that hospital bed scene. I thought, ah, well, here now is the fight is the ideal thing for Spike to you know come and do. Um, it's not going to be very demanding because I knew he wasn't that well by then. Um, but word came back that he was he was too ill even to lie in a bed and you know uh, on camera. Mm. Art. So uh, so we got Eric Spike. So, and I mean, that was, was quite, I mean, it's parallels, of course, that keep going, don't they, between yes. Spike, Eric Sykes. I mean, there was another parallel, just parenthetically, on the Angry Old Men um, project, which was that at one time it was going to be directed by Dick Lester. And, uh -huh. um, you know, I had a lot of meetings with Dick, and, which, and he was kind of bumped off the project in the end, I think because the producer thought he was going to make it too expensive, but he was, you know, I had a great time. Um, having sort of chats with him, but um, and he had uh, Uncle Dick had one line I think in it. How did it go? It was something like um, it was um, it was something to do with some soup or something, wasn't it? It was a, a, a I think Margaret has a line that she it was too cold or something. She says something like, um, God, "Imagine having to drink this." And um, Uncle Dick just says, I did. <laughs> um, and that was the line. And of course, Eric Sykes um, cannot hear. Couldn't hear. That's right, yeah. Completely deaf. And he's lying there with his eyes closed because the whole point was they're wondering if he's dead or not. <laughs> um, and so how Eric Sykes managed to come in on cue at that point, I don't, don't know to this day, but anyway. That was so, oh. uh, so that was quite sweet. Yes. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'm as I say, we just it, the, our contact with um, Spike sort of dribbled away into the uh, in the nineties, and uh, which was a great shame because um, obviously he was the most you know wonderful company, and um, mm. you know, so those those evenings that we'd be sit by a sort of roaring fire in his house and have afternoon tea and. I remember there was an occasion where he was, was just really so fired up and, you know, and uh, uh, he said, I've, I've had one award um, in this business over all my years, one single award. I'll go, and, I'll go and show it to you. And he went off, you know, sort of chuckling in anticipation of what he was going to come down and show us. Um, so we kind of made conversation um between ourselves because <laughs> he seemed to be away longer than we were expecting and when he came back into the room so his suddenly his face was ashen and um all the humor had evaporated he says great and you go out of the room you know have to show some change something funny and they ring up to tell me diana Dawes is dead and so this was the you know some journalist had rung up <clears throat> so we then so then <laughs> The whole mood of the of the evening, you know, sort of changed as we discussed Diana Dawes, with whom we'd worked on a sound Bruce Forsyth, and he obviously knew very well, and he said he'd been to visit her recently. And uh, oh, okay, I didn't realize I didn't realize he had um, a yeah, sort of friendship she, with her, right? Yeah, she said, um, you know, how are you? And she said, well, Spike, you know, and he says, um, she knew, she knew then that uh, you know it wasn't going to be long. And, Oh God! Also, you know, it was so sad, and and there was a long sort of silence. And Andrew said, um, "So, did you give the press a quote?" "Yes, four pounds ten. <laughs> then he promptly just 
dissolves into laughter again, flaring <laughs> up into that fetal position. But that was Spike, you know, that sort of summed up Spike to me. You can, comedy was never far away from him, you know. Absolutely, absolutely. In, in the marrow, you know. David, do you, do you mind if we just, I just want to, want to now I've got you, I, I would like just to talk a little bit about One Foot in the Grave, if you've got mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. five, ten minutes, um, because um, it is genuinely one of my favourite sitcoms of all time and it just in terms of the it's so tightly plotted it's so funny and it's got such um rewatchability about it and um and you know obviously the phrase you know he's a victim elder it's become part of it's it, the character has become part of the country's you know cultural fabric um although a lot of people i think unfairly just denote anybody who moans or complains as a victim elder character whereas the character was a lot more nuanced than that and and i just wondered was he was was victor um i know that you'd said you've said elsewhere that he was partly influenced by um walter matow mm. from neil simon's plaza suite mm. but what other inf what what other sort of influences did you bring into the creation of that character Yes, like, well, you've put that all very succinctly and uh, obviously done your research. Um, yeah, I think, well, the, the, that was the, the, the Walter Mathel, Mr. Hubbley character was uh, was certainly the, was probably the closest sort of parallels. I also said um, that, you know, that the, new, the Neil Simon um, Jewish angst, which is really what um, you know, I suppose I've tried to capture in British form. Mm. So there was another, that was a huge influence. I made up my mind. The minute I get my hands on her, I'm going to kill her. Once I show them the wedding bills, no jury on earth will convict me. No. No, no, I changed my mind. Killing's too good for her. She can go into a convent. Let her become a librarian with thick glasses and a pencil in her hair. Let her become the first spinster on the moon. I'm not paying for any more cancelled weddings. Tell her. Go ahead, tell her. Never mind. I'll tell her myself. And uh, watching The Prisoner of Second Avenue back mm -hmm. many years later, and indeed seeing it on stage, I think Richard Drake was playing it in the film as Jack Lemmon. Um, yeah, it was almost verged on plagiarism, I think, by Twinney. And <laughs> the character's name was even Mel. Um, well, there was no no connection there between Mel and Meldrew, but I, you know, it was um, so that was that was yes a big influence. Um, but you know, I've I've stumbled recently on odd snippets of um, Alf Garnet and realised yes, there's a lot in this sort of dynamic between him and Dandy Nichols and and these two characters and all of those sort of you know um, shows and characters and, uh, yeah. and which i grew up with um have got to be in there somewhere um i drew a parallel with um the characters who live opposite um samantha in bewitched who i think well what was it the wife was always looking through the curtains and seeing something strange going on oh somewhere. yeah you know and yeah. those things you know i've i've grown up with them they're in whether consciously or not i i know that they will have they will have coloured the uh, Patrick and Pippa, you know, reacting to the strangeness. But we understand. We know why it's happening. Yes. So they put a different spin on it. 
and Patrick in particular puts the most you know, sort of malevolence you know, possible, possibly. Um, so uh, that you know, I'm sure if you went through the fine tooth comb, you could find I mean, everybody's. I would guess um, comedy is um, is influenced by you know some precursor or other. I'm not quite sure where all of Spikes come came from, but um, probably quite a bit from the Marx Brothers, I think. Um, yes. But you see, he would be prone to saying things like, and I remember him saying that Jack Benny was never funny. And I used to sit there and think, well, you might be out on a limb there, Spike, with that one. Um, but, you know, that was... and But then the next day he might say he was the funniest man alive because he was sort of full of those contradictions. But anyway, getting back to, um, yes, Victor, um, I, I had written a, uh, a pilot for Thames back in the 70s, which, um, which again, drew on that characterization i think quite heavily and um that never got anywhere but was stored sort of still stored in my uh, consciousness when i came to do mm. have a go at this um Mumford in the grave pilot which i did in 1989 or whenever it was i mean i yes you're right in your earlier um premise though that um that, that victor tends to be sort of two-dimensionalized in that respect um and that's what's made it so endearing enduring um mm. endearing um and i think i think didn't conan doyle say that once about sherlock holmes that i mean watson is by far the richer character in many ways because he's real but um holmes you know is just and it's like a lot of the dickensian characters you know the really strange eccentric ones that are in many ways kind of cartoons are the ones everybody remembers and it's sort of the same. That's it's for the same reason that people remember Victor, because they don't really have the time or inclination to sort of probe any deeper than that. Um, and you got even even the, in the BBC one day there was a um, there was an inquiry came in from some one of the BBC's many departments. They were making a um, a promo about um, encouraging people to pay their license fee, and wanted a clip that um, showed Victor being mean um you know in order to mm. some way illustrate the point that you know you've got to you know try and not be mean and pay your due you know, um bbc license fee um and to which our response was how do you know he's mean he might be a big supporter of public service television i think he would be um, i think he would be in, yeah you know? so you know your the whole premise is 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 ill judged in the first place um go away <laughs> there aren't any clips of him being mean we can show you a clip of him helping out at a soup kitchen on christmas day you know um just do your you know research um, more thoroughly um but that's how people sort of see him and people the number of people that say just like my dad just like my father never say just like me no um, no you know which is kind of how i see him of course was uh, <laughs> and, and he responds you know he's a response a react or reactive character to all the stuff that because god knows every week that i had to sit there and try and think of the thing you know i work on the basis that he would start each day feeling cheerful and i have to devise all of the you know the various elements that conspire to reduce him to a gibbering wreck and <laughs> that, you know from which one hopes the, the laughs will flow but um um, um, but absolutely you're talking about the, the great british public there so <laughs> mm. all unto themselves and um 
And look, I haven't, this resentment hasn't been simmering for 30 years and I didn't invite you on to criticize your work at all, David. But, but I've had a, a, there's a, there's a, there's something, there's a little thing in one foot in the grave that has always slightly annoyed me mm-hmm. and, and, and it's totally irrational. Okay. But I want to air it now. If that's okay. <laughs> um, the episode, I think it's the episode who's listening. So we're talking 1991 was that something like that um uh where victor is playing i think it's battleships and margaret's mum is on the phone and she's playing mm-hmm. along and she's always just he'd throw two fives and she'd throw two sixes or whatever mm-hmm. um and at one point he re- he refers to her as mini crun oh yeah and that was used to annoy me because the character was mini bannister in the goon show oh. <laughs> But she oh, was, right. but, but well, she was, well, she was the, she was the companion of Henry Crun. Yeah, yeah well, well spotted. <laughs> well, not well spotted because I mean, to a goon fan, that would be page one. But uh, <laughs> well, I suppose you know, defensively, one can just argue that Victor got it wrong. You know, True. human like the rest of us. Obviously, if I, had, I mean, Minnie Bannister, in any case, has got a better rhythm to it. <laughs> probably why it was Minnie Bannister and Henry Crun. But um, uh, so needless to say, if you know that had been pointed out to me before we recorded it, I would have changed it. Um, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, Henry Crun and Minnie Bannister. Um, as, as we know, it we, sounds we, 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 funny, of course. But and people, and of course, people laugh. You know, you get the laugh of, and most of that audience probably, dare I say, wouldn't know who Crun or Bannister were anyway. But um, but but Victor's. We know that Victor is more of a Python fan. Anyway, well, uh, <laughs> I yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. Is it does it occur in any other episode other than that one, the spam spam? Mm. I don't know. I mean, mm. it may have been a one-off, but I mean, that's his. It's just an indication of his sense of humor, I suppose. Yes, um, yes. Is, um, and who knows what was on that sitcom script that he was writing? Oh about. yeah, absolutely. The one, the one that Margaret just she she crushed him. Yeah, tired tears it up. Um, yeah, well, those are the moments of poignancy. I mean, Victor La- Richard laughing um, is always, you know, I mean, people go on that, you know, when he's fulminating and exploding and, you know, grouchiness, and that's kind of what the character's all about. But some of the funniest scenes to me are when Richard is doing his laughter. Um, like, for instance, when he's watching the, um, the uh, all the chaos in the theater, which he thinks is part of a farce, yes, and he's sitting there in the audience, and all of which was, as you would guess, recorded um, or filmed without anything going on on the stage. It was mm-hmm. just closed set. I mean, Susie Belbin was just talking him through the action, so he was just reacting to nothing. And then he gets his M&Ms out of his pocket. I mean, just those reactions are just priceless, and the way they're then all spliced into it, yeah, um, is one of my favorite ever sequences but uh, also when he's when he's he's just reading to himself that you really believe he's reading something that he's just written in his sitcom script in bed <laughs> and then, then just you know holds it against his chest and can't stop chuckling away at it what's it about i'll tell you when i've finished you know that's, uh, <laughs> that's richard at his, uh, his equal best i think when he's when he's doing all that sort of stuff but um yes well um thank you for pointing out the Mini crime. It was actually uh, risk that they were playing. Uh, risk, uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> yeah, <clears throat> all these years, and that's never been pointed out. 
Oh, well, uh, I'm glad that this I have... Would the, this would be the podcast to do that, of course. <laughs> um, and before we started recording, for, for various reasons, we mentioned Brian Murphy. Yes, who's and, still um, here staring at me. Yes, because he is my um, my Zoom avatar picture at the moment. Mm. And um, and um, just for the record, The Man Who Blew Away is my favourite One Foot in the Grave episode mm. with um, Brian Murphy as Mr. Foskett. Yeah, probably um, the most miserable Christmas Day comedy ever. <laughs> but the story behind that, of course, if, if anyone wants to hear it, is that um, it wasn't written. Um, wouldn't probably won't surprise you to know it wasn't written as a Christmas special. And I'd written six episodes, and they wanted a Christmas special again. Um, uh, so I, you know, haven't got it in me. We haven't got time. You know, no, I don't think it's possible. Um, and in the end, after a lot of arm twisting, I just dis I agreed to extend um, the first episode <clears throat> to forty minutes, and it makes sure there's a lot of snow in it. And um, mm. <laughs> the, the Christmas episode, which then went out on Christmas Day. But I think, right, well, I know that writing specifically for Christmas Day, I don't think you would have had a man committing suicide. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, but anyway, on to your question, which was. Well, no, I just uh, that's that, that was my favorite. That's my favorite episode, although there's many, many that I love. I, I realized quite recently that i haven't given series one enough attention i've watched series two onwards multiple times many 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 times but i've not watched series one very much and i don't know why that is but um i guess it's slightly it's it's finding its way isn't it it's it's a bit more muted it seems to be and it's yeah, well i mean the scene you know, it's you know you, you can't make the assumption that having watched you know what one foot in the grave became over the course of episode series two three four five six and specials that you know series one would therefore need to be consistent with all of that because none of that had existed no when we were i was writing and we were making series one yeah by the time i was writing episode three you know or four i was probably still had les dawson in my head as a character <laughs> um, you know because we should have turned this down and all of that and um so things were very very different and uh, yes of course we were finding our way and there, and there's a lot of margaret's dialogue in there i, I don't think would have i don't think would ever have uh, um, appeared in later shows <clears throat> i mean I, I i was really it was all insurance just trying to you know write as much you know cramming as many silly lines and um like a jackknife nivea tanker and <laughs> just stuff like <laughs> yeah. just there for pure silliness and you know if you're, you're going to try and be strictly a bit more naturalistic as i did later on um for all of the madness and surrealism that occurs i try to kind of keep the dialogue a little bit more <laughs> a bit less gratuitous than that um so there's bits of that and indeed annette's performance in that um First series is, uh, is is still finding its way, as you say. I think Richard is he kind of springs into it fully formed. I mean, you look at him in episode one, and there's not very much different. No, that's you know, right. Book to become, but she she's she's playing it bigger. Um, yeah, she, she confessed. You know, she felt it was very very uncomfortable experience. She'd never done it before, performing in front of and always said, "I don't know who I'm performing. I'm going to perform to the audience there or to the camera. I was going to perform into the camera." always performing to the cameras but you are aware of the audience and obviously if there's big laughs coming in you've got to somehow try and absorb that laugh 
way the Ronnies did to perfection with their sort of pretending to take a sip from a glass and then, you know, holding yes. glass long enough. I mean, they were masters at all that. Yes, um, yeah. You know, and that is an art in itself, which she was only gradually sort of uh, coming to terms with and learning. But uh, she never found it, you know, pretending she found that a comfortable experience. I think she was always um, felt better doing doing stuff on film. <clears throat> um, uh, yeah. Well, you mentioned um, Conan Doyle before. Um, the, the series one episode, Return of the Speckled Band. Yes. Um, did you get any grief at all? Because surely to God you must have from the Athens Tourism Board. No. The, the amount oh, of... The Ath- Athens Tourism Athens. <laughs> I you were talking about... Um, I thought you thought there was this was a question about, about Sherlock Holmes' copyright. Because um, also the Valley of Fear was another one. Oh, of course, yes. Mm-hmm. And then it moved on to Edgar Allan Poe and later. And later so. But... Um, uh no and in fact that cutting that uh, mrs warboys reads out i think was the actual cutting from a color supplement uh at the time that, that business because that phrase is an extremely dangerous overrun i know is something i don't think would ever have come from my brain it was right. from something um that, right whether the report was accurate is another matter but if they had done i suppose you said well take it up with the observer or whoever had printed that but that was i mean i've had a not special i thought it was quite a nice sort of twist that you know if people go on holiday to greece there's no way that wouldn't be seen traditionally in a comedy or in drama as as an, as an exciting you know nice thing to be doing um so to have it as you know your prayers are asked for staying <laughs> on a fortnight's holiday to greece was uh, I thought was quite a nice sort of yeah. angle to take on it, and those are the things I was always searching for. You know. Oh, I saved you this cutting from the Sunday supplement. <clears throat> uh, let's see. Oh yes, Athens Airport is a particularly hazardous one due to slippery runway, poor markings, extremely bad air traffic control, and a highly dangerous overrun. Thank you. Give us something to read on the plane. <laughs> yeah, no, we never had. Uh, I don't think we ever had. But, but I mean, we had. We had an um, an objection to a book title in episode two. I remember. Uh, what was it? Coping with old age. I think it was called. Um, mm. What was it? Called? Was it called something else before that? I can't remember. But I know there was that. Needless to say, a book with that title that someone was uh, uh, concerned that we were using there. Right. Yeah. Because in those days it wasn't a simple search online, you know, these things could be missed much more, you know. Of course, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in these days of mobile phones, no one needs to remember phone numbers anymore. But no. uh, but there's 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 three numbers that I burned into my memory. One is my childhood childhood um phone number when I was growing up, my uncle's phone number in Belfast, and Four two nine one, which, which is the Meldrews number. How, well, did you did you take ages sort of agonising no, over? No, that? I mean it's such an unnatural number anyway. I mean, who has a four digit number anymore? I don't. And even then, who had a four? Digit, I, I had three digits. Four. I had three digits because I, I was in New Zealand. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh right. Well, yes. Well, he wasn't New Zealand, so there was no excuse there. But um, uh, yeah, I suppose there must have been some 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 quirk of the di- local dialing, dialing code or something. I don't know. I mean, obviously, you had a, di- di- it was, had a different number in the, <clears throat> in the first series. 
And um, uh, it, I, to this day, I don't know why that has become such a thing, this 1491. It's obviously something to do with the rhythm of it. And um, there was a day on, I can't remember if it was Jonathan Creek or Love Soup, when the, um, when the clapper loader came up to me with much joy and glee to point out that um, this was tape, this was uh, tape, but slate number 4291. <laughs> um, you know, it's, you know, wasn't this amusing? Um, I, even as I'm talking to you now, I'm um, sort of conflating various other things in my head, one of which is the story, another story I've always told about uh, when a uh, time once when I was talking to Douglas Adams back in the 70s, we did a review together, um, and uh, he was quoting an interview that he had seen with John Cleese, when John Cleese was asked, what's the funniest number, John? And he said, without thinking, 42. And uh, Douglas mm. was much amused by this a year or two before he started writing. Mm -hmm. But there's no there's no link, is there, between the fact that the first two digits of 4291? I've never even, never even occurred to me before. Mm -hmm. <laughs> is this something quite sort of you know, transcendental? Yeah. I don't, well, know. I don't know. Possibly. Or something to write a thesis on. <laughs> and look, we haven't, we haven't got time. You mentioned you touched on it then, Jonathan. We haven't got time to talk about Jonathan Creek or Hot Metal, which I loved as well, with um, uh, uh, Twiggy Rathbone. Um, Rathbone and uh, yes, and Richard, of course, which was well, I had him on what spotted briefly before that, but uh, yes, he took over from Jeffrey Palmer in the second series. So I'd got quite a good relationship with him and knew what he was, what he was capable of. But a lot of that obviously was uh, spawned by my. Well, the, 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 the accuracy of it, oh, in hopes there was some accuracy because it was quite a broad show, but um, <clears throat> what stemmed from my own newspaper background, but um, but the plots were more just picking up the sun every morning and you know, <laughs> just adding a slight twist to it. And that was that. It was another episode. Um, that was in the sort of Kellen McKenzie era. So, yes. Yeah. 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 Did you ever meet Bill Cosby? I certainly did. Mm. I mean, lies another whole story. Yes, I mean that was another cause, a bit in very similar to the Spike story, actually, because uh, that was uh, normally these things you get inquiries and they, you know, they they sort of peter out gradually over a long period of time. This was a um, a call from my agent again, saying um, Carsey Werner was an American production company are interested in American rights to unfit in the grave. Um, they'd like to uh, fly you out to New York um, to have a meeting about it. So next thing, almost a day later, I'm on a plane to New York, meet them at the Carlisle Hotel, um, which was as intimidating as you can imagine. It would be three hotshot big mm. producers. Um, and they said, how do you feel about Bill Cosby in this role? Um, and I remembered not the Plaza Suite, but the California Suite, which uh, one of the segments in that involved, I think it was Richard Pryor and Bill Cosby. Mm. Um, and he was quite a, playing quite a grouchy character in that. Um, and I said, yes, I think, yes, I imagine he'd probably be quite good. He said, good, because we're having dinner with him tonight. So, um, you know, without having time to catch my breath we were we met him at his house on the upper east side and um but sort of cosby cosby court and um you know um he'd i think he'd watched a few episodes i don't 
quite know how um, how into the show he was, but it, at the, as a premise, it was obviously something that he felt could tempt him back into um, into TV sitcom land, and um, which it did. So <laughs> it's just bizarre, really, when you think how much of an idea one put in the grave is, which is nothing. You know, <laughs> yeah. a man really who you throw all these strange events at every week. Um, and yet I managed to sell it, you know, for you know, a tidy sum of money and get an executive producer's fee each week. For nice. Yeah. Nothing. I mean, they wanted me to be over there running the show as a showrunner. And that's, I, I totally like being, being a lunatic asylum or a, or a, or a cardiac ward within two weeks. So, but we did go over and uh, my wife and I and um, went to uh, the last week of the first series and sat in on the writer's room, which was all of which was far funnier than anything that ended up on screen. Mm. And um, and it was the very week that, um, prior to that, the week before, Cosby's son had been murdered. I don't know if you remember this story. Oh, God. Ennis Cosby had been, been shot. Oh, geez. And um, the day of recording was the day that was the news was just completely full of the fact that they had caught this guy and arrested him. And... Um, we were sitting in the stalls at the uh, Calvin Astoria studios over in Queens and just in the morning, there seemed to be no sense of urgency or anything going on. And Cosby just wanders over and, and made some comment to the effect, oh, as soon as you guys come over here from England, so they catch him. Um, and he didn't, didn't, we thought he might be in some way preoccupied or, you know, I mean, clear, I mean, his love for his son was unquestionable, um, but he was, it was more, more a case of just, real relief and delight that they've got this guy he said i don't think he's going to survive in prison and I, I remember him saying that i don't know what he meant by it but um mm. um but that was you know and then he then went on to give his usual performance on the night which was almost entirely improvised um and you think why is anyone providing him with a script because he just makes it up as he goes along and then they have to struggle in the edit to you know to pull something together nevertheless it ran for about 90, 90 episodes and um fair to say it bought me this house on oh good um so um thank god it all happened <laughs> when it did and not sort of 20 years later i probably wouldn't be sitting here well but, i'm uh, guessing i'm guessing you, you don't still exchange christmas cards with not sure we ever did do that but, uh, but yeah. you know it has to be said you know i saw him a couple of times live and uh, you know he was just wonderfully wonderfully funny mm. you know? i mean that much can't be taken away no. but um but it was just the most curious thing that um that should have you know should have taken off the way it did you know with the, with with him in the role um, because it had borne no resemblance to my show whatsoever but um, such is the way. Absolutely. And, and look, David, thank you. So we've been talking for so long. I've taken up so much of your time. I really do appreciate it. But we've covered a lot of things I wanted to cover, particularly yeah. Spike, obviously. And, and I did yeah. want to talk about One Foot, of course. Um, and if, look, I'm going to gloss over the mini crumb blunder. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I wanted to also just in, just in, um, give a plug to my series. I don't know if you've ever come across it, Desolation Jests, which was a radio series I wrote for David Jason in 2016. It's the last thing I did. Now I'm retired. Okay. Um, 
which was about it was a, as the name suggests it was a it was a a, a, a a kind of pastiche of desert island discs and the premise was that um each week a fictional fictitious guest came on and chose a number of comedy skits that they would take with them if they were the last person on earth after some apocalyptic event had wiped out civilization so that was the premise and each week john bird would be the sort of Roy Plumley character interviewing these different characters played by David Jason and into that mix um, were all these different sketches one of which was I was quite pleased with it was a, a goon show parody which I had some fun writing um, a group that I referred to as the Demob mob and uh, and it was called the intercontinental ballistic non sequitur and so if anyone wants to see right. I think I think Desolation Jest is still on uh, BBC Sounds. So, um, so, and we had Rory Bremner in there doing it, and with another nice little nod to the original, Christopher Timothy played the um, announcer. Ah, very nice. I got very bad news from Berlin. The Germans are planning to carpet bomb London with carpets. Great staring organ cords. We're done for. No, fear not, gentlemen. We have a plan. Allow me to present this Bakelite replica of Dr. Robert Oppenatomheimer to explain to you the details of the Mad Hatter Project. Thank you, Moody. Sadly, I couldn't be here in person tonight due to a prior engagement. You can't be engaged to a prior. They're all celibate. <laughs> Enough. Cast your eyes, gentlemen, over this multiple re-entry missile. As you see, it carries ten warheads, each one armed with a deadly non-sequitur of truly frightening power. A non-sequitur? I don't follow. <laughs> then allow me to demonstrate. Does anyone have a small, expendable half-wit about their person? I never leave home without one. Here! Good evening. <laughs> Climbs out a gentleman's top pocket and salutes superior officer. If you are looking for a guinea pig, look no further. <laughs> and before we go on, I would like to know what sons of dosh I am to be paid for this highly dangerous mission for what I am about to be ordered to volunteer. Of course. How does a tenor sound? Thanks. There is very obvious payoff to that joke, which I'm not falling for. <laughs> My terms are five licorice or sorts plus expenses. Two licorice or sorts and a burial at sea with full military honours. Done. And of course, David David Jason was a huge goons is a huge Absolutely. goons fan. Totally yes. Well, I think um, he did go to goon record some goon recordings in his a little bit older than me um, in his day. Um, yeah. Uh, did quite a nice blue bottle and. Uh, I remember when I think Rory did the Eccles and but anyway it was that was so that was a lot of fun um and I had some fun sort of putting all that together but I just thought I'd no appreciate your, it. I was, your, I was, your listeners might be <laughs> absolutely I was going to ask you if there was anything you wanted to plug or anything you're working on but you've you, you're just enjoying retirement then okay, no, okay. yes yes I am and also there was a series Andrew and I did called the Steam Video Company which was not one of our best ever mm, I remember it that was a that was a bit of an attempt to sort of merge, <clears throat> I suppose, some sort of goonish humour with with Benny Hill, I suppose, because it was peak time Thames. So it was a bit of a, a bit of a strange mix, really. But there were, you know, titles like the Secret of Plankton, the Mystery of Plankton Lodge, and I was Hitler's bookie and things that had yeah. obvious were obvious goon influence um, influence titles. And, um, so it's, yes, it has, it's been, you know, it's never really left my system, I suppose, over the years. 
Thanks again to David. Just a quick word before I go. This podcast will, in a couple of months, have reached its 100th episode. Dear God. And friend of the show, Mark Cousins, had previously suggested that I do a, a special mailbag show to, to mark this milestone. Uh, this would be uh, where listeners send in questions about the goon show or the goons individually. And myself and, and perhaps people like Mark, like Andrew Pixley, will try to answer some of them. Or you could simply message me with suggestions on how to improve the podcast, what you like, and even what you don't like. Go easy about the podcast. Or maybe questions about, about the making of the podcast. Basically anything to do with GoonPod, which you feel is relevant. Or you can just send a voice note about pretty much anything you like. No filth, please. Um, I'd like to ask people to start thinking about this and, and please do start sending in questions, comments and whatnot, uh, which I can read out and, or, and, you know, or play on the show. Uh, I can be emailed uh, at tyler.adams1974 at gmail.com or via Twitter at GoonShowPod or indeed seek out the GoonPod Facebook group. Simply search for GoonPod and follow. Anyway, have a think. Let me know. I look forward to receiving your feedback. And until next week, bye.